The reading for today is from Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be with you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, Redemption. You know I love the church's history. Uh, Is there anybody here who remembers when Oye was on the residential staff at Redemption Church? Anybody? Yeah. A few of you still around. That was, yeah. And some of you are like, why can't he come back? (laughs) That was really good. All right. I'll move on. Um, We are starting a new series for the next nine weeks. We're going to be doing an overview of the minor prophets. And one of the things that we're going to do almost every week, not every week, but almost every week, uh, because we know that there's a a bit of a challenge understanding the the context of the minor prophets for a lot of people. Um, The Bible Project guys have put together these videos. Many of you have seen them. Uh, We think they're really helpful. And so we're going to start, not every one of them, but almost every one of them, with the overview of the book that we're going to be looking at that Sunday. We're going to be looking at the book of Hosea today. Uh, That's what the reading was out of. And so we want to start with the Bible Project's video of Hosea to help us. The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian Empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married, but they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai. 
Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land, and they took all the abundance that he gave them, and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel, and he thinks about doing so, but instead. He says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why. It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled, and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry explores these themes in more depth. So there are two collections of his accusations and warnings for Israel, and then each of these is concluded by a very hopeful poem about God's mercy and hope for the future. So chapters 4 through 10, Hosea explores the causes and effects of Israel's unfaithfulness. He says numerous times that Israel lacks all knowledge or understanding of God. The Hebrew word to know, which is yada, it's more than just intellectual activity. It describes personal relational knowledge. It's the difference between just knowing about someone and then actually knowing that someone. And God wants Israel to know him like that in a relationship. He wants them to experience his love for them and become the kind of knowledge that transforms their hearts and lives so that they love him in return. And so this is why Hosea is constantly exposing the hypocrisy of Israel's worship. He constantly shows how they're breaking the Ten Commandments, how they're allowing grave injustice in their communities, and then they go to their sacred temples and they offer sacrifices <coughs> to God like everything is just fine. But it's not fine. And not only because of their hypocrisy, but because they're worshiping all of these other gods too. He, he mentions many times their altars to Baal at the cities of Bethel and Gilgal. And not only have they given their allegiance to other gods, Hosea repeatedly accuses Israel for trusting in their political alliances with Egypt and Assyria. So instead of trusting God to protect them, they want to become like these nations and rely solely on military power. And God says it's all going to come crashing down on their heads because in not too long, Assyria will turn on them and come to ravage their lands. In this other section of warning, Hosea gives an ancient Israelite history lesson to show how this family's been unfaithful from the beginning. So he alludes to the patriarch Jacob's lying and treachery. Remember Genesis 27 and 28. He alludes to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Remember the book of Numbers. He alludes to their appointment of the corrupt king Saul who led the people into sin and disaster. Remember the stories in 1 Samuel. This is all Hosea's way of saying some things in this family family never change. So what hope does Hosea have? Well, we know from chapter 3 that God's going to do something to save and restore his people, and that's what these two concluding chapters explore. Chapter 11 is beautiful. The poem depicts God as a loving father who raised his son Israel and then shared everything with him. But the son grew up and rebelled and turned on the father, taking advantage of his generosity. And so in this poem, God is emotionally torn apart. 
One moment he's angry, and naturally he says he's going to bring severe consequences. But the next moment he's heartbroken. And then he says that he's moved by his mercy and compassion, and he's going to forgive the son that he loves. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns inside of me. All my compassion is aroused. And so while God did allow Israel to be conquered by Assyria, face the consequences, that's not God's final word. There's still hope. And that's what the last chapter is about. Hosea calls Israel to repent and turn back to their God, but he knows that it won't last because it never has before. And God says that one day he will heal their waywardness and love them freely. God goes on to describe this new healed Israel as a lush tree that will grow deep roots and broad branches and offer shade and fruit to all of the nations. It's an image of God's promise to Abraham, how Israel was to become a blessing to the nations. And God's saying if that's ever going to happen, it's going to require an act of God's grace and healing power to repent the deep brokenness and sinful selfishness of the human heart so that God's people can receive his love and love him in return. This is what God promises to do. Now, after this poem concludes, we find the very last words of the book. They're like an appended note. They're likely from the author who collected Hosea's poetry and now wants to speak to you, the reader, for a second. And he says, who is wise and discerning to understand all of this? In other words, Hosea's poems. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but the rebellious stumble in them. So the author wants you to know that Hosea's ancient poetry to northern Israel is not locked in the past. It reveals deep truths about God's character and purposes and human nature. And while God should and does bring his justice on human evil, his ultimate purpose, his heart, is to heal and to save his people. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about. Wow, that's really fast, isn't it? <laughs> if you're a note taker, you were very frustrated during that. Um, and in a sense, um, maybe this isn't a great series to take notes in. Maybe we should just listen uh, and then read. Um, and, and I know that was very fast. You're going to hear a lot of things repeated in the messages, uh, the message today and the, and the subsequent messages from the videos uh, but we also know that that's the best way that we learn is through repetition. And so we want to go ahead and, and repeat these things so that we um, get it into us. So now we're going to back up a little bit and, and I'm going to introduce the whole series now. I'm going to give you a little preview on the whole series and then we'll dive back into the book of Hosea. So what is it about the prophets? What do they do? Primarily Old Testament. And we think of the prophets as only an Old Testament phenomenon not necessarily true. Biblically, yes, perhaps, but not necessarily true. What was the job or the purpose or the intent or the result of the prophet's ministry? Well, number one, uh, we get a lot of history from the prophets, all of the prophets. Uh, the Bible is a historical book, and we need to understand that. And, and the prophets help us with a lot of that history, help us to put together a lot of that chronology. And you will find in what we call extra-biblical sources, in other words, sources outside of the Bible, you will find much of the history that's in the Bible confirmed by other people who are writing absent of their biblical knowledge. And this is why we know that the Bible historically is, is a book that we can uh, rely on and trust. And the prophets had a big part of that. 
Uh, you, you heard the Bible Project guys say that the prophets also, at least Hosea, but all of them give us an insight in, into the heart and character of God. Uh, and, and so we know what's important to God and what isn't important to God by reading the Old Testament prophets. And you hear that in Jesus' preaching as he takes it forward in the New Testament. And you hear it in, for instance, Paul's writing in the New Testament as well as he takes that forward. Uh, we also hear in the prophets lament, sorrow, grief, and mourning because the prophets are particularly aware of the sin and the idolatry of God's people in their context. Um, and then there's the consequences. Um, this may be the most important thing that prophets do. When we hear prophet, a biblical prophet, many of us, our minds immediately go toward thinking, oh, they predict the future. They predict the future. There's a little bit of that in some of the prophets, but not the way we think. It's not this idea that they sit around and they're thinking, oh, this is what's going to happen in 500 years. Yes, there's a little of that, but primarily it's not like that. They do predict the future, but it's an educated prediction, and it's rooted in God's word. It's rooted in God's character, and this is why we have prophetic voices even today. They're not in the Bible, but we have prophetic voices. Here's what the prophets do. Here's what the prophets of today do. They see a people or a person moving along one track. They understand what God's word says, what God's heart is, what God's character is, and it's over here. And the person of discernment looks at where this is going and where God is going and where God is and then is able to draw a conclusion. This is where you will end up. And surprisingly enough, it usually comes true. In fact, it comes true way more often than we would like it to. And the problem is, is that no matter how many times we experience this, no matter how many times we read it or experience it in our own lives, we continue, like the people of Israel, to walk away, to walk away from this wisdom. I can sit with somebody who's having an affair, and I can say to him, listen, if you continue to do this, this is not God's plan for your marriage. If you continue to do this, here's what will eventually happen. Your children will not like you and will not be, want to be in, in relationship with you, and your wife will probably divorce you. And what does the person usually do? I'm different. I'm the exception. I can keep it hidden. I can manage this. I can do it. It's going to be okay. And five years later, their children aren't talking to them, and they've been divorced. And, oh, by the way, financial ruin has come to their family as well. In case you didn't know, divorce is really expensive. That kind of stuff is really expensive. And I know that there are people in here who have been through that and have felt that. And I know that brings up feelings of guilt and sorrow, but also we need to talk about stuff like that so that others don't go through it, hopefully. But again, just like the people of Israel, there are people there that are, that are going to hear this message and they're going to say, but I'm different. I'm the exception. I can manage it. I can outsmart God. This is what the prophets do. They say, you're heading down this track. This is what God says. Here's where you're going to end up. It is future-telling, but it's educated future-telling. And we have people doing that even today. And then here's the other thing that the prophets did in specifically their context. The prophets did the very difficult work, very challenging work, of going to both the religious leaders and the political leaders 
of the nation of Israel, whether it's Judah or Israel, the northern or the southern kingdom, they would go to them and they would confront them in their idolatry. They would tell them, you are worshiping false gods. You have turned away from the God of the covenant, Yahweh, the Lord. You have turned away from him and you are worshiping false gods. And the reason you're doing that is because there, there seems to be, there appears to be greater pleasure and greater success in these false gods, but you are headed for destruction. And the religious and the political leaders generally rejected these messages, and that's a problem. And what were the idols? They are exactly the same idols we wrestle with today, the same ones. No, Frank, we're much more sophisticated today. No, we're not. We might have better technology, but we're the same as the nation of Israel wrestling with the same false gods. Power and politics, status and image, comfort and wealth, the self. We today call it meism, the worship of the self. Meism. The alliances. You heard the Bible uh, Project guys mention the alliances. Um, the, the religious and political leaders of Israel found their strength not in God, not in the Lord, but they found it in their alliances with other countries and in their military. One of the strongest rebukes that King David, the greatest king that Israel ever had, one of the strongest rebukes he had was when he started putting his faith in his military. And you can read about that in the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament. God rebuked him severely for that because he was putting his faith in his military might and not in the Lord God, his God. And, and, then, and then here's another one that's pretty big, sex. Sex. Sexual identity, sexual manifestation, sexual behavior, same thing that we run into. And in fact, Sex, for them, was not only a false god, it was also a part of their worship, and I'll explain a little bit more about that later. Are we off to a good start? Are we excited? Isn't this fun? Yeah, okay. Now, although it is the way most of us identify these minor prophets, so we're not doing Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, we, we identify them by saying the minor prophets, but but calling them the minor prophets does a great disservice to the major contributions that they give to God's word and to the history of God's people. They are bold and unrelenting, and they are called by God to proclaim unpopular messages of sacrifice, idolatry, power, justice, and, and always the hope for forgiveness and redemption to the majority, yet mostly, adulterous and unfaithful leaders of God's people. That's what they do. And so, yeah, this series preaches as much to me and to the leadership at Redemption Church as it, as it does to all of you. And if you and I aren't challenged by what is taught in this series, then we, frankly, have not done our job. The minor prophets are preaching to people who are refusing God's call and commands want to be blessed and for their circumstances to change in the midst of refusing God's calls and commands, but they refuse to look at themselves and their own part in the midst of that. In other words, they like to say, this is all God's fault. They will say that to the prophet. The problem isn't us. It's God. This is God's fault. 
The prophets call the people to self-assessment. The religious and political leaders the prophets speak to mostly call for the prophets to be killed. And that's not hyperbole. So, again, preview. Here you go. Let me just give you some information that I think is helpful and important. Number one, we're not going to do Jonah because we're doing four weeks in Jonah in the late spring of 2019. That's already on the preaching calendar. We're also not going to do Obadiah and Nahum. We just simply didn't have the calendar space to handle those two. If you're a golfer, think of it as a PGA event, and they just didn't make the cut. Sorry to Obadiah and Nahum. Here's what we're going to try to cover in each sermon. This is very ambitious, but we want to talk about the historical context and if there's any backstory, some wonderful backstories to these prophets. We'll talk about the message and the key themes of the prophet. We'll talk about where, where the gospel and salvation lie in the prophet's message. And then we'll try to answer that big question, so what? So what for us? What does this mean to us? And like I said, very ambitious, but we're going to try hard to get through each of those things. Uh, here's the schedule. You can look at the slide. I've had a ton of people emailing me and texting me. What's the schedule? What's the schedule? So I'm glad you're interested, but here it is. Hosea today and then Habakkuk, Joel, Amos, Haggai, Malachi, Micah, Zephaniah, and uh, Zechariah, and Zephaniah. So um, those last, the, the, the ninth through the 23rd are, all of them are messianic to some extent, but those are the three most messianic, and so we thought we'd do those during Advent, Okay. Now, the next thing I want to go through is this um, basic historical timeline of the Old Testament history. And I know for some of you, you will tune out right now. And, and, and I'm just telling you, you shouldn't, okay? Uh, the number of people that I hear say to me, and I was like this too. When I was 27 years old and somebody told me to read the Bible, I had no idea what I was reading. One of the biggest reasons I didn't have any idea what I was reading is because I did not understand the historical context. I didn't understand the historical timeline. If you struggle to read the Old Testament, one of the reasons is because you probably don't understand the historical timeline, where everything fits. This basic timeline, if you can start to get it down, it will help you tremendously in your Old Testament reading. You'll start to connect things and put things together. This would, this would be so helpful if you could get this down. So here you go. The Joseph narrative from Genesis 37 through 50, the first book of the Bible, is generally around 1800 B.C. The, the Moses and Exodus narrative, the book of Exodus, is mostly around 1400 B.C. Entering the promised land in the first three centuries after the promised land, in other words, Joshua and Judges, that's about 1350 to 1050 B.C. The second king after King Saul, the king that most of us know the best, is King David. He was from 1010 to 971. Solomon, his son, the third king, ruled from 971 to 931. He wrote Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and most of the Proverbs. And then in 922, just nine years after Solomon dies and his sons take over, the kingdom splits. The sons, here you go, read the story. His sons had an argument about tax cuts. Seriously, read it. It's about, they had an argument about tax cuts and the nation split. And that's where you get this language about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
So the northern kingdom is called Israel. They have 10 tribes up there. The southern kingdom retains Jerusalem as the capital. They're called Judah, and they have the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, two tribes down there. Samaria, the city of Samaria, becomes the capital of the northern kingdom. In 722, 200 years later, you heard uh, the Bible Project guys refer to this, the Assyrian conquest happens of the northern kingdom. They come in and obliterate uh, Israel, and it's not like the Israelites didn't have warning that this was coming. Hosea is one of the prophetic books that warns of this. And the intermarriage of Jews begins. Uh, eventually, this becomes the Samaritan problem. Remember Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and how scandalous that was? This is started with the Assyrian conquest 700 years earlier. Okay? Um, and then in 605, 597, and 586, that's the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom, Judah. And the great Babylonian exile begins at that time. 70,000 Jews are carted off to Babylon, and we'll look at some of the um, prophets uh, that are involved in that. But this is when the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, and Jeremiah are written around this time. In 539, the great Medo-Persian Empire foils the Babylonians. We're going to tell that story in a few weeks. It's a wonderful uh, story. In 520... The return to Jerusalem from Babylon is in full swing. We'll look at that in the prophet uh, Haggai and the, and the rebuilding of the temple. Also during that time, Ezra, Nehemiah, and um, uh, Esther are, are written, but Esther is in a completely different context. One of my favorite books in the Bible. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to do it. And then in 3 BC, Jesus is born. So there's your, there's your uh, overarching chrono chronology. So now let's talk about Hosea. Of the 17 prophets in the Old Testament, four made their proclamations during the 8th century B.C., and Hosea is one of them. And of those four that did the 8th century pro uh, prophesying, he is one of two who preached to the northern kingdom, to Israel. Amos is the other. We're going to look at him on November 25th. Now, Hosea and Amos were the two prophets to the northern kingdom in the 8th century B.C., but they are very, very different. Amos preached against the terrible social injustices being committed by God's people. Hosea spoke against the simple, crude faithlessness of God's people. He calls it adultery. Amos is all about how badly God's people treated other people, and Hosea is all about how badly God's people treated God. And a few passages in, in Hosea do call out the southern kingdom, but Hosea was mostly primarily called to let the northern kingdom know that if they did not turn back to God, that the Assyrians were going to come in as God's discipline. And literarily, not literally, but literarily, chapters 1 through 3 are very different from chapters 4 through 14. Chapters 1 through 3 is the story of Hosea and his adulterous wife, Gomer, it's a metaphor of sorts for God and his people. And then verses four through, uh, chapters 4 through 14 are oracles or short messages or sermons of rebuke, correction, and judgment directed toward a faithless and deserving of rebuke people. Um, think of chapters 4 through 14 as a series of judicial indictments because that's mostly how they read. Uh, and though Hosea's call to preach is heavy, on the faithlessness and stubbornness of God's people, his primary message is one of patient mercy and redemption. That's his primary message, patient mercy of God and the redemption of God. And isn't that a picture of good news? That's a picture of good news. Exposing just how filled with treachery and sin 
these people had and were actually points strongly to the amazing character of God, that he's loving and merciful and patient and redemptive. God cannot be outlasted by our sin and stubbornness. He can't. We can't take it to God. He can outlast us. Now, it doesn't mean he will. His patience is not limitless. Read Romans chapter 1. Read about the Assyrian conquest and the Babylonian exile. His patience is not limitless. But believe me, there's no way we can outlast God. And that's really, really good news. If he's coming after us, he's going to win. Now, Hosea's ministry of proclamation lasted about 30 years. That's one more difference between he and Amos. Amos's proclamation of ministry only lasted at, at the most 18 months and probably less than 18 months. So Hosea preached uh, approximately from 760 to 730. So he stopped preaching about eight years before the Assyrians uh, came in. And, and this time that he preached in, 760 to 730, was a rough and turbulent time for the northern kingdom Israel. Here you go. Look, everybody, look up here. Quit taking notes. Look up here. Okay? This is what was happening during those 30 years. Israel had a high rate of affluence, an incredible rate of affluence, and yet they had the worst political unrest their nation had ever experienced. Does that sound vaguely familiar to anybody in this room? I have to ask this question, and I know it's a question we don't really want to talk about, but what's going to be our Assyrian conquest? Have you thought about that? I don't want to think about that, Frank. What is going to be our Assyrian conquest? Well, we're going to take it to... No. What's going to be taking it to us? What's our Assyrian conquest? What is it that's coming? Now, here you go. Oh, boy, Frank's going to get political, all right? I am shocked. I, I want you to know I have a background in economics. That's what I majored in the first time in college. I spent 20 years in the marketplace, okay? I am shocked that nobody is talking about a $20 trillion deficit. I don't understand. I'm sorry, de not deficit, debt. I don't get it. Are we that blind? Is that going to be our Assyrian conquest? Nobody's talking about it. We're talking about all these other things. And here you go. Do you know how to do math? <laughs> the math doesn't work. How many of you are running a $20 trillion debt and deficit in your households? How's that working for you? You can't do it. It doesn't work. When are we going to be called on that? When? And by the way, well, that's a, that's a math problem, Frank. It's not a spiritual problem. Okay, <laughs> you are so wrong. It's a spiritual problem. The borrower is the slave to the lender. The borrower is the slave. For you in the back, the borrower is the slave to the lender. We're enslaved right now as a people, and we don't know it. I got my new car. I'm not in slavery. We're enslaved. By the way, this is what you might call prophetic preaching. We, we have a problem, y'all. Nobody's talking about it. 
All right, I'll move on. The Israelites, yeah, I'm much more comfortable talking about them. The Israelites were under constant pressure from the threat of the greatest military strategist to that date. His name was Tiglath-Pileser III. He was amazing, and he had, the, he had assembled the biggest and toughest army in history to that date. And Israel, at that same time, was going through kings the way you and I change our socks. There was just this turnover of kings, assassinations, and all kinds of goofy political turmoil. And through alliances and heavy taxes paid to Assyria and to Egypt, and God's patient grace, the northern kingdom was able to hold off the, the Assyrian army all the way until 722. Interestingly, this historical fact was confirmed by the royal chronicles of the king Tiglath-Pileser. Every king back then kept royal chronicles, historical chronicles, and if you read um, the Bible next to Tiglath-Pileser's royal chronicles, you see that they say the, exactly the same thing, that this is what was happening. Prior to 722, Assyria had mustered six different military incursions over the decades prior to that into Israel's uh, neighbors, and, and, and their army was unstoppable, but they hadn't bothered Israel yet. But then in 722, that was it. They came in and they stomped Israel. And Hosea warned that this was coming, and if the people would only turn back to God, they could be saved. But they weren't listening. The people and the leaders of Israel were having absolutely none of Hosea's message, or Amos's, by the way. And in chapters 4 through 14, Hosea has images of the faithlessness of God's people, and they are some of the most classic in Scripture. And, and here's just a few of them. This is not all of them. He, he calls the people of Israel an adulterous wife, an ungrateful son, a stubborn cow, a foolish bird, an incompetent baker, an isolated donkey, grapes in the wilderness, a deceptive merchant with unbalanced scales, and whores, to name just a few of the images. And the number of times that the words whore and whoredom are used in this book is frankly quite astonishing. And that image, that picture, is what the book starts with in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the wife of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. The story of Hosea's marriage to Gomer, which is chronicled in chapters 1 through 3, is a tragic story of sin, idolatry, adultery, and betrayal, to be sure. But it's also a story of beautiful redemption. Chapter 3 is absolutely beautiful. It's also a clear picture of the relationship that, uh, of God with his people that he had chosen. For two centuries, the people had turned away from God. The God that Hosea constantly reminds them in his book, through his oracles, the God who brought them out of slavery the God who sustained them in the wilderness during the Exodus, and the God who brought them into their beautiful land, the God who gave them King David and King Solomon, the God who protected them for centuries from invasion, conquest, and exile, which are things that ancient people feared more than anything else. And they'd rejected God and become worshipers of Baal. Now, why Baal? Why specifically Baal? You heard the Bible Project guys mention Baal. 
Well, see if this doesn't sound familiar. Baal is the Canaanite god of the weather, the harvest, the economy, and sex. My, how people don't change. Money and sex. Wealth and pleasure. That's the god Baal. And, and, and that sex thing, prostitution was actually a form of worshiping Baal. But it was only for the men. The women were the prostitutes, primarily. There were some male prostitutes also, but primarily women prostitutes. And what the man would do is that he would go into a temple of Baal, a church like this. And there would be prostitutes lined up. And he would select a prostitute and pay money to the temple, which the prostitute would get a portion of, and he would have sex with her in order to atone for his sins. Now he's forgiven for his sins. Now, I know, you would never say this out loud, but secretly you're thinking, well, that's a little better system, I think, than maybe God had set up. <laughs> it's sad. Think of how popular this became, though. Here's what Hosea says to the people in chapter 4, verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore. Okay, so the Israelites are having children and then allowing their daughters to go off to become prostitutes in the temple of Baal. This is unbelievable. We would never do that. Nor your brides when they commit adultery. Oh, so the wives were going off too. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Folks, we're a people without understanding today, too. You just need to know that. I know that's hard to hear, but we are. No, I'm really smart. I got this all figured out. I got the latest update on my Mac. We, we lack understanding today. The prophets speak to us today. And listen to this. Look at, that. Look at that verse. The punishment for this is going to be on the men, but there's always devastating collateral damage on others. That's sin. It's the husband who keeps all the finances from his wife, and she has no idea of the coming ruin due, due to his foolishness. That happens. It's the wife who can't help herself and has the affair that can't possibly hurt anyone, and now the kids are devastated. And from this verse I just read, you, you should be able to get a sense of why the words whore and whoredom are used so frequently in this book. So this had been one of Israel's downfalls for more than two centuries, Baal worship. And, and this is, again, so amazing to me. How many of you remember the story of Elijah's Mount Carmel battle with the 850 prophets of Baal and how God mopped up those Baalians, Right? That happened 100 years before Hosea. 100 years. And it was Israelite lore. They told that story and they proclaimed the greatness of God and then went to the temple of Baal. I just don't get it. You shouldn't get it either. None of us should get it. <laughs> it's so ironic. They couldn't stay away from Baal. It's amazing how people will turn from the one true, loving, merciful God in order to make a little bit more money, improve their career, and enjoy sex without boundaries, right? And then the inevitable consequences come, and there's great consternation. 
well, it just happened. Why, why is this so bad? No, it didn't just happen. You, you were a part of the process. That's the one I hear all the time. This just happened. No, it did not. You're not fooling anybody with that. And there's always great concern. I, I can't believe that it's gotten this bad. Yeah. We're confused. We're vexed. There's great consternation when the consequences finally come. I guess I wasn't the exception. So Hosea obeys God, and he marries Gomer. She becomes a prostitute who symbolizes God's people. Now, imagine the hurt. Imagine the injustice. Imagine the pain. And that's how God feels when we whore against him. Here's the summary in in chapter 2, verse 5. For their mother, Gomer, has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Apparently, it, wasn't, it just wasn't good enough to be with, with Hosea. She wanted more. You see, Gomer is us. Gomer is us. Always looking for that little extra and always willing to sell ourselves out in order to get it. Uh, Mike Butterworth, who's an Old Testament scholar and obviously a pancake expert as well, he writes this, Hosea married Gomer, a woman who turned out to be like the people of Israel, unfaithful. She left him for someone else, and in doing so, gave an accurate picture of Israel who forsook God in order to go after other gods. This can also be a picture of those today who claim to know Jesus, but turn away toward, but turn toward their other seemingly more comforting gods. And so Hosea preaches. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Just ruminate on that for a while. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens. And even the fish of the sea are taken away. There is no such thing as private sin. No such thing as private sin. Sin damages everyone and everything. Even the fish. Even the fish are damaged by sin. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. God says this, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. You heard the Bible Project guys say this. God wanted uh, not for the people to know about him, but to know him, to be in relationship with him. You heard heard Oye say today, the difference between poverty and and wealth is relationship. You ever thought about it that way? You ever thought about it that way? God doesn't want religion and ritual. He doesn't want you checking the box that you come to church every week. We'd like you to be at church. We think that's important. But if you think that's your way to salvation and favors, making sure you say your Bible verses or whatever, he doesn't want ritual. He wants to be with us in relationship, faithful, loving, covenantal, compassionate relationship. And that's what Hosea wanted too from his wife. 
And it's what we all want, really, if you think about it. You, you, ever, you ever been with somebody on their deathbed? They know they're dying soon. Do you ever hear them talking about how they didn't read the Bible enough or go to church enough or they didn't go to the office enough? They didn't go. What are they talking about? They're talking about relationships, love, faith, connection network. My father, when he died at 94, he said for years, when I die, I want to be in my bed, in my home, surrounded by my five children. And that's exactly the way he went. He was in his glory in that moment. And because 15 years earlier he had professed Christ as his Savior, he's also in glory now. That's the way it looks. It's what we all want. Even after all the money and the, all the pleasure are acquired. By the way, that's the book of Ecclesiastes, which Solomon wrote. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built, and his country improved, and he built, and he improved his pillars. This is what happens when prosperity and pleasure come. It's never enough, and, and we continue to build altars to it. Malls, stadiums, whatever it is, we just continue to build our altars to these things. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 5. For the one who loves money, they never have money enough. For the one who loves sex, they never have sex enough. For me, it's for the one who loves carbs. They never have carbs enough. But it's true of any of these things that we think is going to satisfy us. And then look at verses 10 through uh, most of 13. God says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, your hard hearts. For it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way. And, and Hosea tries in vain continually to remind them of who God is. Look at chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. That from the land of Egypt is a reminder of the Exodus, their greatest event in history. And beside me, there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. I'm the one who provided for you during the 40 years in the wilderness. And many say, you heard the Bible, uh, Bible Project guys, they say that the whole message is summarized in the last verse. Chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. I know there's people in here today who are thinking, nah. You're going to stumble. This is the truth. What, what the world is telling you, what culture is telling you, what social media is telling you, that's not the truth. This is the truth. This is prophetic, divine truth from God's mouth to our ears. But really, the payoff is what Ashley read earlier. Go back to chapter 3. 
This is now Hosea going and redeeming Gomer. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lekveth of barley. You know, in seminary, we used to laugh that it was a homer for Gomer. We were going to have t-shirts made. <laughs> but that's, that's him. Re it's not just that he went and got her. He had to pay a bucket load to be able to redeem her out of, out of her sin. And I say to, I say to her, you must... And, and I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You should not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without aphod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And David their king. David's dead. What does that mean? The Messiah is coming. And they shall come in, fear, uh, come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That's the gospel. That's who Jesus is for us. David, their king, our king, is Jesus. He's the son of David. He came from David's line. This all came true. He redeems us in our adultery, our idolatry, our whoredom. That's what Jesus does. And think about this. Think about this history. God has the Assyrians come in didn't learn. God had the Babylonian exile with the southern kingdom. Even that, 70 years in Babylon, in exile, they didn't learn. They came back, and within months, they were rebelling against God. God brought them out of Egypt, the Exodus, and all they did was whine and complain. We'd rather be in slavery and be able to eat cucumbers and be out here and eat this manna. That's what they told Moses. Brought them into the promised land. That wasn't enough for them. Do you see this theme? Over and over and over, God rescues. God redeems. God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And it got so bad. Listen, it got so bad that God finally said, all right, here we go. I'm taking my son, and I'm sending him down, and he's going to go to the cross. That's how serious... God is about loving us. That's the gospel. And he's redeeming Gomer through the cross. I've heard so many people talk about how we're the Hosea in this story. We're the ones going, and no, we're not. We're Gomer. We we're the ones that need redemption. We're the ones that need Jesus. And God has done that for us at the cross. We cannot out-sin the cross. You can't do it. I hear all the time, God could never redeem me. You have no idea what I've done. Maybe I don't, but God does. And he sent Jesus, and he redeemed it. You're redeemed. All you got to do is accept that redemption. That's it. Hosea is the book for anyone who thinks they are beyond the love and grace of God. That's why we started with it. We are the lost. We are Gomer. And God comes for us. Let's pray together.
Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for hard lessons, but we also thank you for where they lead us, to your loving redemption. We need to hear the truth so that we're ready to accept the truth of the love and the glory of your Son that can be ours. So help us with that, God. Help us to recognize that you are our priority. It's not that these other things aren't important. The food, the politics, the pleasures, not that those things aren't important, but they can't save us, they can't redeem us. God, only you can, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.